0: Just visit magazine dot org slash subscribe and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections.
1: Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican.
0: The Pope today ordered the removal of Bishop Joseph Strickland from the Archdiocese of Tyler. Strickland's removal comes after the church investigated his governance of the diocese earlier this year. Strickland has accused Pope Francis of, quote, undermining the deposit of faith.
1: Pope Francis has removed one of his most vocal critics, Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas. We analyze this uncommon but definitive decision.
2: Now, one of the big developments is the role of women in the church. We need to have a a paradigm shift, particularly in in processes of decision-making and making sure that we recognize the fact that that women de facto carry the life of the church.
1: Jerry has interviewed several bishops and cardinals to get their impressions after the first Rome session of the Synod on Synodality. What are they saying about this new way forward for the church? I'm Colleen Dulley. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry.
2: Good afternoon from a cloudy Rome, Colleen. I fear it might be raining when I leave the studio.
1: It's pretty rainy and gross here, and as you can tell, I'm, I'm getting over a cold getting over might be uh, wishful thinking, actually.
2: Well, I wish you rapid recovery, Colleen. I don't want you to disappear off the sound waves.
1: No, we'll do our best to push through. All right, Jerry, let's get into our first story. So on Saturday, November 11th, Pope Francis removed Bishop Joseph Strickland as Bishop of Tyler, Texas. This came after the bishop refused to resign on November 9th. Bishop Strickland had been subject to an apostolic visitation over the summer. That's when the Vatican sends people to investigate the governance of a diocese. And this was following an incident in which Bishop Strickland tweeted that he rejected Pope Francis's, quote, program of undermining the deposit of faith. He's been one of the Pope's most vocal critics. Jerry, what do we know about why Bishop Strickland was removed?
2: We know that he was removed as a consequence of the Visitation, the week long event that took place in June, which two American bishops were the visitors, and they spoke to him and they spoke to priests in the diocese, lay people, and they came back with their report, which they sent to Rome to the Congregation of Bishops. And this was discussed at a meeting in Rome, in which some cardinals, including the nuncio, Apostolic Nuncio to the United States, Christophe Pierre, now a cardinal, and others. And they gave their conclusion to the Pope, which was that he should not continue governing this Diocese of Tyler in Texas.
1: And now, was that because of his criticisms of the Pope? Was it because of how he was running the diocese? What do we know? I know that the Vatican doesn't publish these reports. Well, what I
2: understand from talking to people is that There was certainly a malaise among many of the priests. Uh, I understand also that the bishops in Texas, the other bishops, were not so happy with him and, in fact, were satisfied with his removal. He has a seminary in the diocese which has 21 seminarians, and there's questions over the type of candidate he was accepting into the diocese. There was also questions over how some staff uh, resigned, etc. There was questions about really how he was managing the diocese and also some appointments that he made. It seems that the conclusion was that this man was not suitable to continue governing the diocese. In addition to that, there was the fact that he was coming out with statements about the Pope saying that he was undermining the Deposit of faith. Now, I've listened to a recent interview with him on which he was asked, What do you mean by the deposit of faith? And he said, Scripture and our tradition, and effectively what is in the Catechism of the Catholic Church.
1: And he thinks Pope Francis is undermining this.
2: He believes Pope Francis is undermining it. Now, he doesn't specify how he is undermining it, but I remember that Pope Francis changed the question on the death penalty, he questioned on nuclear arms his positions from the what is in the catechism. And he also in other statements questioned really seriously questioned the, the synod of bishops, which Pro Francis has said is what the Spirit of God wants for the church in the twenty first century.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he
2: called it garbage. He called it garbage. Well, you know, if you're a bishop, you're meant to be in union with the Pope and with the other bishops. These statements show that he was really distancing himself from the pope, and he felt that he had the truth, that he was the deposit of truth. That's what comes across from interviews. If you listen to some of the interviews he's given in recent times,
1: yeah, I want to pick out one thread in what you said there, which was uh, this thing about the seminary. It seems like Strickland had been trying to make his diocese in Tyler, Texas, kind of a a hub of traditionalist resistance to Pope Francis. He also had this hallmark project called Veritati Splendor, uh, which was this kind of housing development where traditionalist Catholics would come and live in intentional community. It would be a hub of homeschooling. And this all fell apart after two of the organizers were caught having an affair. So that's maybe yet another thing that the uh, diocesan investigators were able to point to in terms of just failures of Bishop Strickland's governance.
2: Yes, and he also uh, refused to implement Traditiones Custodes, the prohibition of the use of the pre Vatican II Mass. He, he said that he didn't want to starve his flock. So uh, we can see that on many issues in these past five years, especially, he has been distancing himself from the main line of. Pope Francis and uh, the Roman Curia. He, he seemed to consider that he was the custodian of the truth and that somehow that these were betraying the truth and the traditional teaching of the Church.
1: And Jerry, I think some people hearing this might wonder, like, why was he given this job? But we should point out that he he wasn't always like this. You know, when he was first appointed, he was known as like the blogging priest. He ran this little blog in which he uh, wrote mostly about like the runs that he was going on because he's a big runner. And it was only in recent years that he became like this, right?
2: Well, he, he says that a breaking point in his ministry as a bishop came in 2018 with the whole McCarrick case and the publication of the McCarrick report, he had a strange expression, which I
1: oh yeah he uh it was he was a big supporter of Archbishop Viganò's letter, which kind of kicked off the whole McCarrick investigation and report. Uh, and then after the McCarrick report came out, which was this eight hundred page report from the Vatican, he called it a nothing burger. So a nothing uh, burger, that's the expression. Yeah, yes. like a book cover containing nothing.
2: But he, he it's interesting that he found. Viganò's letter issued in August 2018 as credible, and he had it distributed among his priests, etc. And so it, it is significant, I think, that he's a young bishop. He's 65, relatively young. But he has, over the past five years, increasingly distanced himself from the Pope, who is the center of unity and orthodoxy in the Church. He has also been distancing himself from many bishops, also in the United States.
1: Well, and in his own state of Texas, as you mentioned. I think this leads us to the question of what happens to Strickland now. We know what's happening with the diocese, that Bishop Joe Vasquez of Austin is now the administrator until they can find a new bishop. But Strickland, as you mentioned, is only 65 you can't you know, be unmade a bishop, or at least that would be really rare, and I don't think it would happen in this case. He's even at the USCCB meeting this week. So what what's happening to him now? Where does he go from here?
2: Well, it's interesting because in one of these recent interviews, he said, even if they remove me from a diocese, I'm still a successor of the apostles, and I'm a bishop. And he doesn't intend to keep silence. He's made that very clear. He said, my calendar will be empty, but it will soon fill up. He'll get in calls for to give talks here and there. The question is how much more he will distance himself from Rome and whether Rome's patience with him will remain. We have to wait and see. But I think this fact of distancing himself from the See of Peter is, is somewhat disturbing. And there's a small group of bishops in that category.
1: And Vigano is definitely another person who, you know, has kind of blazed that trail in terms of, you know, maintaining a media presence while, while not being in a bishop leading a diocese kind of role. Jerry, I want to zoom out a little bit and ask you, how common is it for the Pope to remove a bishop?
2: Well, if you look at Francis's two predecessors, Benedict XVI and John Paul II, both of them removed bishops who refused to resign. Normally, when the Vatican concludes that a bishop has problems and that should not continue in the governance of the diocese, they give him what is called here an honorable exit. He offers his resignation and the Pope accepts it. He was asked to resign. He refused to resign. The same thing happened in another case under Francis, when a bishop of Costa Rica Bishop Daniel Torres in Costa Rica refused to resign, so he was removed from office. Under Benedict XVI in 2011, an Australian bishop, William Morris, also refused to resign and was removed from office. 1995, John Paul II removed a French bishop, Jacques Gaillot, from Normandy, also each of them said in conscience, I cannot resign. And so he was removed from office. Because each of them, the, the French bishop and the Australian bishop, were really advocating ordination of married men, the ordination even of women in the Australian bishop's case. In the French bishop, there were several issues, both theological and political. Historically, it's rare, but not unique The removal of the bishop. Some decide that they will refuse to resign at the Pope's request, and so the Pope removes them.
1: I think, you know, one of the key calculations for Francis here is we've talked in the past about how he's been unwilling to like make martyrs, right? And in this case, Strickland had said months ago that if he were asked to resign, he would refuse. And it it kind of plays into this image of himself that he's. I, I want to say marketing. I think marketing is probably the right word as someone who is part of the resistance to Pope Francis. And so by firing him, Pope Francis does sort of make a martyr of him. Like now he can use that as his platform, the, the removed Bishop of Tyler. We've spoken in the past about how Francis has been unwilling to make martyrs. Do you think that he's becoming more willing to over time?
2: I'm not sure making martyrs is a word. I'd say he doesn't want to humiliate the bishop. It's one thing. By having the Pope throw him out, it's another thing. And uh, he's put himself up as a point of resistance.
1: Yeah, I mean, but the Pope did throw him out in the end, and now he can use that to give all of these talks and so on. And I remember that in past cases we've talked about how Pope Francis would just put up with a lot from bishops. He wouldn't remove them, and now he has removed one. And I wonder if you see this as kind of a breaking point or like a sign of how far Francis is willing to be pushed.
2: Well, I think also Francis has listened to many people who have been really disturbed by what the Bishop of Tyler was doing. I I think he's underestimated how many lay people, how many Catholics really support the Pope. If if you look at the Pew Research and other figures on the states, you'll see the, the vast majority of churchgoers support the Pope.
1: All right, Jerry, we're going to wrap this up here. When we come back from our break, we'll talk about some other bishops. Uh, We're going to talk about a series of interviews that you've done with bishops and cardinals from around the world about the synod and how it's being implemented in their dioceses and where they think it's going next. Stay with us. Jerry, during the Synod and after, you sat down with several cardinals and bishops from around the world to ask them how they're implementing synodality in their dioceses. You also talked about what the Synod's October meeting was like for each of them and what they anticipate coming next. So I'll try to name them all. Uh, it's it's quite, quite a long series, but you had American Cardinals Supich and McElroy. You had Indian Cardinal Oswald Gracious, who is one of the Pope's top advisors, You had Peruvian Cardinal Pedro Barreto, whose diocese is in the Amazon. You had the French Cardinal Christophe Pierre, who is the nuncio to the United States, the Australian Archbishop Timothy Costello, and the Chinese Jesuit Cardinal Stephen Chow of Hong Kong. So, what through lines have you noticed in all these conversations? First of all,
2: I think all of them see this as a real transformational moment in the history of the Church. They see it as a peak point in the papacy of Pope Francis. They see it as uh, perhaps the most radical change that he's bringing about in the Church. Secondly, they all felt that the synod that took place in Rome from 4 to 29 October had no precedent in the way it was managed in the methodology used and in the form of discussion that took place, and the lack of polarization, a lack of confrontation within the the actual assembly. So they all saw that something new had been born with this synod.
1: Now, on the whole, they were very positive, but did they express any criticisms or concerns about the process?
2: Everybody recognizes it's a work in progress. It's not a finished model. I think this is very important because they said there were some in the synod who felt uneasy with the fact that lay people were actually present with a vote. Not that they were present, but with a vote. While others, and this seems by far the majority, were very comfortable with this and saw it as the dawn of a new form of synodal assembly.
1: Yeah, can I ask you about this? Because I was recently interviewing the Canadian Bishops' Conference president, Bishop Bill McGratton, and he said something that kind of echoed what uh, Cardinal Gracious told you, which is that while the bishops really appreciated the presence of lay people, some of them want to move towards a model where they have what they would call an ecclesial assembly, so a meeting of lay people and bishops, like the one that happened in the Synod of Bishops this year, uh, and then have a meeting that's just bishops afterwards. Now, Cardinal Supich told you he doesn't think we're ever going back from having lay people voting in a synod. So it feels to me like these two ideas are in contradiction. It feels like having a synod of bishops exclusively after an ecclesial assembly is going back to not having lay people voting in a synod. What is your view on how common each of these two opinions are? Where do you think this is going?
2: Well, let's look, first of all, at what Cardinal Gracious said. He said, I think we should not go back, but I see roadblocks. He said, I can even see someone putting the foot on the brake. So I I think he's a man with a lot of wisdom. And he's saying, basically, the synodal approach you've had here, we have this working in Asia. And I'm also struck that the Africans who were seen as perhaps conservative Welcome this form of synod. So I I think there's quite a substantial, I don't know, overwhelming body of opinion which thinks this is the way. But everybody believes that synodality needs to be defined better, theologically and canonically, to understand better, you know, what does it mean we walk together, we listen together, uh, we, we take decisions together.
1: I think that's fair. And that's what came out in the final document, too, on this question, was that we need to further our understanding. I want to highlight another thing, which is that uh, Christophe Pierre, the now cardinal who's the new to the U.S., said it's been difficult to get the U.S. bishops on board with this. I'm curious what you can tell us about, you know, as several U.S. bishops come back from the synod, now are attending the USCCB meeting in Baltimore this week. What do we know about, you know, what they have planned regarding the synod for this bishop's meeting?
2: Well, I would say two things. First of all, it's interesting that Cardinal Gracious, the Indian cardinal, said, I want to hear from those bishops and conferences who haven't come on board. I want them to come on board. So he said it's very important that we listen to them. And of course, the United States Bishops' Conference is one that hasn't really come on board. In fact, it stands out with perhaps the Polish Bishops' Conference as ones which have been very reluctant to buy into this new way of being church. Now, when I spoke to Cardinal McElroy and Cardinal supich they both said that they themselves intended to feed back to their own diocese, but also to the bishops' conference, which is now underway. way. And they hoped that other people also who participated in the conference, and there were several bishops and plus lay people from the United States, that they would also give a feedback. It's a question of... Will they all join in with the rest of the Church in trying to make a go of this, or will they stand at a distance? Obviously, we will have to wait what comes out of the conference. I understand that the discussion of the Synod is part of the conference.
1: Yes, which uh, there was some controversy over it not being included in past meetings, Uh, and it was kind of up to Christophe Pierre in his address to the bishops to really deliver this message of synodality because it was the only time they were going to be focusing on it. Speaking of the USCCB meeting, our colleague Michael Lachlan, our national correspondent, is in Baltimore this week covering that whole meeting. And so you can read all of his coverage at americamagazine.org. Jerry, our listeners can find this full series of interviews that you've done. They're really fascinating. They get into a lot of different aspects of the synod and synodality. Uh, I'll link to all of them in the show notes. But before we go for today, I wanted to bring up Gaza. Obviously, Pope Francis has continued his appeals for a ceasefire in Gaza. And on Sunday, he said this. He said, every human being, be they Jewish, Christian, Muslim, of whatever people or religion, every human being is sacred and precious in the eyes of God and has the right to live in peace. He says, let us not lose hope. Let us pray. Let us continue to work unceasingly so that the sense of humanity may prevail over the hardness of heart.
2: He said this in in relation to the fact that there's a real attempt to, on both sides of dehumanization presenting the the past Palestinians as real troublemakers as anti-israel presenting the israelis as real violent people or vice versa. And so Francis is very keen that this attempted dehumanization, which is part of the information war that is being waged parallel to the military conflict. And Francis is saying, we mustn't allow ourselves to move down that, that track. And if you remember his famous statement to Sundays back, I think, you know, we should not take sides, we should be on the side of peace. And peace is a situation where you respect the other person.
1: Right, Jerry, I think that does it for this week. Thank you so much for talking with me and I will see you next week.
2: Thank you, Colleen. I hope your cold has got better. I think there's a lot of stories to tell to our listeners. And uh, there's a lot they can read also. I would also recommend that they try to read the synthesis document on the Synod.
1: Yeah, it's a bit of an undertaking. It's like 40 pages. <laughs> yes, but uh, you don't have to read it all in one go. All right. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Ricardo da Silva. Production assistance from Delaney Coyne and Robert Baliser. Kevin Christopher Robles is our audio engineer. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. The show is recorded in part at the studio inside the Jesuits' international headquarters in Rome. To keep up with the latest news out of the Vatican, please follow us on X at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also follow me on X and Instagram at Colleen Dully. That's C-O-L-L-E-E-N-D-U-L-L-E. And you can follow Jerry on X at Jerry O. Rome. That's G-E-R-R-Y-O-R-O-M-E. Please consider becoming a digital subscriber to American Media. Just click on the link in our show notes. It's really easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. And if you have a little time to spare, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. For American Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Daly. We'll see you next time.